You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. You can open your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Luke, not John. Your paper might say John, and you might have gotten an email that said John. The Gospel of Luke. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We'll start in verse 22. If you have a few Bible, that's page 805. I am so looking forward to this month together. By the way, it's December. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this month together uh, in this series that we're calling Let Men Their Songs Employ. Each week, we're going to take a well-known Christmas hymn and examine the biblical truth in it and then spend our sermon time not necessarily looking at the exact quotations that those hymns draw from. Not necessarily. We're, we're finding a passage of Scripture that shares a common theme of that hymn, and we're going to anchor ourselves there. We're not preaching uh, topical sermons here. We're preaching expository sermons from God's Word, but we're choosing those texts based on the truths that are sung every single year in our popular Christmas hymns. But our goal is not simply to just give us some more background information and interesting fun facts and history about these hymns. You'll get some of that, uh, and I pray that's helpful to you, but that's not the point that we're after. Our vision for the series is this, that we would use the songs that we sing to fill our hearts with and focus our eyes on our Savior. That we would use the songs we sing to fill our hearts with, fill them to overflowing and focus our eyes on our Savior. And the title of the series, like we said, is Let Men Their Songs Employ. You may recognize that as part of a verse from Joy to the World. Uh, that verse goes, Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. What that means in that verse, what let men their songs employ means in that verse of that hymn is, Hey, everybody, sing. (laughs) Sing. I'm urging you to sing. It's right for you to sing, to employ songs, to use songs. Because of this great news, the Savior reigns. The earth has received her king. All of creation, heaven and nature, even the rocks and the plains, they ought to sing. If the rocks and the trees and the plains ought to sing, you men, mankind, you ought to sing. That's what it means in the verse of the hymn. But I'm using those words for the sermon series, let men their songs employ. I'm using those words even more strongly than Isaac Watts intended them in his hymn. I don't want us, I'm not just urging us to sing. By all means, I am. But I'm not just urging us to sing. I want us to employ these songs. I want us to use them, utilize them. Singing, music, it's a good gift from God, but it is not an end unto itself. It is a means to an end. I want our study in the scriptural theology of Christmas hymns to help our congregation do a better job of employing, using the good gift of singing for its full purpose. And that purpose is this, seeing and savoring the person and gospel of Jesus the Christ. Notice in that vision, that series vision, there's not a single Christmassy word in there. My, My hope is, that this series will continue to help us better employ our songs in January and beyond. 
Our singing ought to fill our hearts. In Scripture, your heart is the deep place within you that holds your desires, passions, motives, and emotions. It's the inner self. It's the real you, who you are on the inside. Our vision is that your whole inner self, this singing would help fill that up with love and zeal and affection for Jesus and fixate your eyes on him alone. And if you do that, if and when you really do that, it has an amazing way of taking your fears and anxieties and doubts and temptations to sin and just dissolving them. Filling your heart with, fixing your eyes on Jesus, it takes all the weapons of the enemy and melts them into nothingness. And I want that for us. Now, now we have that to, to varying degrees. We have that. We, that's why we enjoy singing as it is, but I want more of that for us. Our church needs that, and it's ours in Christ. If we would only employ the good gifts he's given us, if we would only cooperate with him. So to do that, the first hymn we're going to employ in this way is the one we just sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a song all about longing and waiting for God to come down, rescue his people, defeat the enemy, dwell with his people forever, and fulfill his promises. Much of the biblical language of this hymn comes from the book of Isaiah, uh, but that's not where we're going to focus our time today. Um, You would do well to study the book of Isaiah and think Christmas thoughts. You'd be astounded at how many there are there. But to see the themes of this hymn lived out, let's begin to read in Luke Chapter 2, starting in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's baby Jesus, they brought him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what's said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Let's pause there for just a moment. The big idea from our text this morning is this. Our waiting should inflame our worship not diminish it. As we look at the account of Simeon, we're going to see three exhortations from the scriptures that are aimed at our worship. The first one is this. Worship while you wait. Verses 25 and 26 here. Simeon is an intriguing person to me. He is one of the few people in the Bible about whom we hear nothing bad. No faults are mentioned. Uh, We know he could not have been perfect. He was not sinless. But Luke, who is the author of this gospel, did not want us to focus on any of his shortcomings. He didn't mention them. Luke wanted us to see something about this man's faith. And he uses some staggering terms to describe Simeon. First of all, he says, he was righteous. Now, not merely apparently righteous, not saying he was righteous in comparison to the people around him. People saw him as a righteous man. I'm sure they did. Simeon was righteous before God, the most important kind of righteousness. It's true righteousness. And Simeon was made righteous in the same way that Abraham was made righteous. Simeon is one of the last of the Old Testament saints, 
and one of the few who dips his toe into being a New Testament saint. He is in that same category as Abraham. Abraham who believed God's promises. He had faith in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. If, if any time in a sermon, especially at Christmas, but if any time in a sermon, if, if the preacher is calling back to some Old Testament stuff and your mind is having a hard time of grasping what went on there and how that matters, why even the whole Old Testament matters to us as believers and how we can even count those people as saved if they never knew Jesus. If any of that gives you pause or difficulty, this is one simple analogy that I've been taught that is very helpful to me. That it uses the word credited. Abraham had faith in God. He believed in God's promises and it was credited to him as righteousness. The idea here being that Abraham knew that sin separated him from God and that needed a payment. And in the same way that you would today, if you were to use a credit card, uh, kids, teenagers, you may not know this, but using a credit card doesn't actually take any money out of your account. You're saying, I will pay this in the future. I'm signing my name here. I promise to pay this someday. One day that bill will come due. I don't have the money now, but that day will come. And as the believers in the Old Testament had faith in God, they believed his promises. They said, God, I'm, I'm writing another check. I'm, I'm cashing out, the, I'm using the credit card here. I'm, I'm believing your promises that one day you will pay this immeasurable sin penalty on my account. I don't know how that's going to work, but I believe you. And Jesus came, and when he died, his sacrifice on the cross, the immeasurable riches of his grace and mercy were more than enough to pay for every debt of every sinner. And now, if you come to faith in Christ now, with Jesus' sacrifice in the rear of your mirror, know that you are being saved on debit, because there is an infinite amount of value in the bank accounts of the Lord to pay for the sin penalty. Any number of sins, if you lived a thousand lifetimes, Jesus has paid the once-for-all penalty for your sins. He has paid it. Simeon trusted in that. He trusted that God would make good on his promise. He was a righteous man. The, the authors of Scripture often use the word righteous to set up a character in a story, describing that man or that woman, and describing someone that God is about to use in an amazing way. And you could think of a, a long list. The first one that came to my mind was Noah. I had preached that not terribly long ago, that Noah was this righteous, blameless man, they called him. But it doesn't mean that these people floated around with angels' wings with like soft lighting on them at all times in a soft tone of voice, never sinning. These are not extraordinary people. They were regular, unassuming people who had one strong defining characteristic, and that's this. They believed God's promises. Get used to hearing me say that in this sermon. They believed God's promises. So Simeon here, this righteous man, is a stand-in for all of God's people, all of God's true people who were alive at that time. The people who believed God's promises and were watching and waiting for them to be fulfilled. Paul said in Romans 9 that not all who are descended from Israel are true Israel. There have always been some people born into the midst of God's people who miss the point. For many of them, being part of God's people means just being proud of, embracing the culture, the heritage, and the morality, law-keeping of God's people. 
but faithful Jews in the Old Testament believed God's promises and they waited for them to come true. And Simeon is the ultimate example of that kind of waiting faith. So the main promise that Simeon and the rest of God's people were waiting for was God's promise to send the Messiah. Praying for the Messiah to come was a central part of Jewish theology and practice. When we went through the Gospel of Mark, we got it drilled into us that Messiah means the promised, anointed, Savior, King. That's what they were looking for. They needed a Savior. Jews who missed the point uh, prayed for God to send a Savior to liberate them from the Romans and restore the kingdom of Israel. But in addition to that, faithful Jews prayed that God would send a Savior to make them right with him again. Faithful Jews know that they, needed to be, they knew that they needed to be saved from their sin far more than they needed to be saved from any evil empire. And that's what their whole system of sacrifice pointed to. They went to the temple regularly, but especially on the Day of Atonement, and they sacrificed an animal to show that they understood the penalty for their sin was death. They knew it wasn't enough. Hebrews 10.4 says that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They obeyed God as best they could. They followed his laws as best as they could. They still sinned. They went and brought these sacrifices every time, charging that credit card, saying, God, I don't get this, but you're going to save someday. Save us. They knew there was still a barrier between them and God. It had not yet been paid. Sin separated them from God, and they knew it. They were still in bondage to sin, in bondage to the law, and they knew it. And so they prayed for the Messiah to come and release them from this. Yes, from the evil kingdoms of the world. Yes, to set up a righteous kingdom on earth too. But they wanted freedom from their sin. They prayed that God would fulfill his promise to send a deliverer to do the unthinkable and wash away that permanent black mark of sin that the blood of these animal sacrifices could never wash away. They were waiting for the time when God would make good on his promise to finally fully save them. And that's where we get the language of O come, O come, Emmanuel. It echoes the prayers of God's people who were longing to see him come down and save. Many of our modern Christmas, uh, English Christmas hymns are 100, 150, 200 years old. Most of the ones that you're most familiar with are written by great British songwriters of the church, like Isaac Watts, as I mentioned. But this hymn is far older. The, the melody and the exact wording that we use today, that's about 200 years old. But the lyrics that they were based on are far, far older. They come from uh, liturgical Latin chants from the year 900. These are, this is a very old song. Christians have been singing these lyrics for a long, long time. Understand that as you sing them. You are looking back down the corridors of history and singing alongside people that you will sing alongside in heaven someday. The verses of this hymn, like I said, they use minor chords. It sounds almost like funeral music. It's mournful. There's pain here. It sounds like a psalm of lament. As you close your eyes and, and sing that song, you can almost imagine a congregation of Old Testament saints oppressed by this or that evil king or empire, huddled together in secret, singing words like these. Oh, come, come, come soon. Ransom your people. How long, O oh Lord? Remember your people. Remember your promises. We're in exile here. Take us home. 
But this is not a Jewish hymn. This is a Christian hymn. It uses a word that even the faithful Jews of the Old Testament would not have known to use. Emmanuel. It means God with us. They were begging for the Savior to come, but they never would have dared to think that this Savior would be God himself in the form of a man, and that man would give himself as a sacrifice for their sins, never would have dreamed. But that's who the faithful Jews were waiting for, whether they knew it or not. Not just another anointed leader, not just another king, not just a temporary hero character who saves them from their current troubles. What, the one that they needed was Emmanuel. They needed God himself to come. They needed the Son of God to appear. And that's what Simeon was waiting for. The passage says he was righteous and devout. Righteous tells you how God viewed Simeon. The word devout tells us how Simeon viewed God. He was a faithful man. He was a devout man. He was dependent on the Lord and devoted to him. He lived his whole life in those silent years, that 400-year period where God did not choose to speak to his people through a prophet. And yet, even in the silent years, Simeon watched and waited. And God chose to honor his faith by arranging this bizarre situation. He gets a promise from the Holy Spirit that he will not see death until he sees the Savior from God face to face. There is so much backstory here that we are just not given. And I am very curious about it. I love imagining it. How and when did the Holy Spirit reveal to him that he was going to see the Messiah face to face? We know he's a very old man, or at least he knows that he's near death. That makes us assume that he's old. And the text seems to suggest that he faithfully waited for the Messiah his whole life. When did God make this special promise? Was it that morning on his way to the temple? Or has he been waiting for this personal promise from the Holy Spirit for years? We don't know. But Luke, the author of the gospel account, is clearly showing us that Simeon's waiting did not diminish his worship. He had literally been waiting for this moment his whole life. And it led him to a lifestyle of devout worship and not just singing. Mary and Joseph came and, and brought Jesus, the baby, to the temple. This was not a special holiday where everybody was already there gathered. This was a random midweek visit that, that takes place shortly after the baby is born. That's just what you're supposed to do. There's no special date on the calendar that says Simeon should be there. This was a random midweek visit. This is where they find Simeon. He's in God's house on a Thursday afternoon waiting on God. My friends, we are still waiting, as we've talked about this whole morning. Our waiting is a bit different from Simeon's, but there are sharp similarities. We aren't waiting on God to speak again or to reveal his mysterious plan to save us. We know the one that the Old Testament saints were waiting for. We know our salvation by name. His name is Jesus, and he has come. Our eternal life is already secured. In fact, it started already. Because of his death, burial, and resurrection, we are already seated with him in the heavenly places. We're united to him. He is our life. But we are still waiting because he has not yet pulled the plug on this world. There's no mystery for us in that anymore. We know for certain that he will come back and he will put pain and sickness and evil to death forever. But we don't know when. So we wait. The imperative here 
the implied imperative here is for us to worship while we wait. And I don't mean that we should sing to pass the time. (laughs) Worship is more than just singing, and we're not just trying to keep ourselves occupied with something positive here until our Heavenly Father comes back to pick us up, like we're kids throwing pebbles in a parking lot after soccer practice. We are not just occupying ourselves here. We strive to live lives that are dependent on him, devoted to him, delighting in him, because we are the servants in his parable in Luke 12. Jesus teaches. We are the servants who are fully dressed, fully awake, ready for service, with lamps burning in the middle of the night, because we know our master could return at any minute. And not because, we're not doing this because we're scared that he's going to catch us slacking off and yell at us, we do it because we know that he, what kind of master he is, and we adore him for it. Jesus said this in the parable, it will be good for those servants. Blessed are those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, and this part blows my mind, truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them what is going on here? You get the picture in your mind. These servants are waiting for their master to return. And in the strangest plot twist, the master comes home, finds them waiting, serving, ready to serve him, and he flips the script. He serves them. What is going on here? Do you not see this? He loves them. He truly, deeply, powerfully loves his servants. He loves us. He loves us. What a selfless, humble, loving master. What a beautiful, perfect, holy, worthy king. Why would you not want to be in his service? What possible reason do you have? The infinite God came to this earth and died for you. Does your heart not swell in response to a love that is that tremendous. Answer this for yourself. What would you do if the Holy Spirit gave you a promise like he gave to Simeon? What if God convinced you, the Spirit just came upon you, and you were convinced at the very core of your heart that you would not see death before the return of the Lord Jesus? How would you live? How would you spend your time? How would you Speak to your wife, your husband, your family. You know for a fact, you just know for a fact that Jesus will return in your lifetime. What does that do to your five-year plan? What goals do you set for yourself? What sinful habits do you work to put off that you're tired of? You don't want them to have any business in your life anymore. What godly habits do you work to put on to prepare yourself for the day when you know Jesus will meet you in the blink of an eye? What would change if God made that kind of special promise to you and you really believed it? I have a hard truth for us this morning. If we claim to be God's people, receiving a promise like that should change nothing. I think for the vast majority of us, it would change a lot. It would change so much, but it should change nothing. Why? Because we already believe God's promises. And he has already promised that he will return. It will happen. 
So what difference should the timing make? Serve him now. If, if you saw what he did for you and your heart has turned and worshiped to him, you're not going to wait around to figure out a time when it's convenient to you to serve him. Serve him now. Look on the love he has shown you and respond to him with a life of worship now. You know where this all is leading. Your master will return. Emmanuel will come again. Worship while you wait. Simeon did. His waiting inflamed his worship every day that passed. Our big idea from the text this morning is that our waiting should inflame our worship, not diminish it. Let's see our next exhortation from Simeon. Worship because your waiting is over. Verse 27, Simeon, he came in the spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There's a lot here. Let's go back to the beginning of it. Simeon came in the spirit to the temple. We use a lot of Christian terms, Christianese terms, as we talk to each other about living life. And that's an okay thing. We shouldn't be using only secular terms. But they can sometimes become jargon, a phrase that we can kind of throw around. We forget that they're real. When we say something like, yeah, well, you know, I'm just, just trying to be led by the spirit in this, you know. We usually mean some vague spiritual something or other, generally about obedience, roughly what we're saying. Did you know that this literally is what the Spirit does sometimes? He literally leads people. Did you know that he can and does literally lead you sometimes to pre-appointed places for his specific purposes? Sometimes, if you're being stubborn and refusing to be led, he will drop one of these situations on your head. Um, but if you make a habit of listening to him, you may find yourself literally being led by the Spirit. The Spirit inhabits and, and dwells in your conscience, believer. You must listen to your conscience. If you find yourself arguing with your conscience, realize you are arguing most likely with the Holy Spirit. Stop it. <laughs> listen to him. Go talk to that person. Go encourage that sister or brother. Go do that thing that is on your heart to do. The Spirit is telling you, urging you, go do it. Go be there. Simeon was in the Spirit he just knew he needed to be in the temple that day, so he went. You may notice in verse 29, the words of those verses are suddenly indented in a center column on your page. That indicates that you're reading a quotation of another passage of scripture or the lyrics of a poem or a song. This is Simeon's song. It probably didn't have a distinct melody. It just erupted out of him. But make no mistake, this is him singing this is the fourth and final song of Luke's account of Jesus' birth. The first song was Mary. When she responded to the angel's news, you'll see it bracketed there too. It's Mary's song in response to what the angel had told her. 
The second one was Zechariah and Elizabeth singing about the birth of John the Baptist who would come to prepare the way for the Lord's salvation. And the third was sung by the angels themselves at Jesus' birth. And now Simeon cries out in joy that he has seen the Lord's salvation face to face. And that is the right response. This is good news. This is what the angels said. All of history hinges on this, and it's good, good news. The second verse of our hymn says, O come, thou day spring. There's a word for you. <coughs> thou day spring. Come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. A day spring. Uh, where, where does daylight spring from? From the sun. <laughs> uh, but specifically, it springs from the rising of the sun. And Advent, Ben told us, Advent is just arrival. Cheer our spirits by, the, by your arrival here. Like the sun bursting over the edge of the horizon on the darkest of nights, Jesus' arrival dispersed the darkness of sin and brought gladness to the hearts of all those who would have eyes to see. Simeon calls him in this song a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and a light for the glory of Israel. Old Testament saints were not told to evangelize. Did you know that? They were, they were preaching warnings to the Gentiles at times, but Judaism was designed to be a common sea religion. Israel was supposed to be holy as God was holy, and their existence in the world was supposed to be a testimony of God to who he is and what he's like. Sometimes people did come and see, and they were converted. That happened in the Old Testament. But their main job as God's people was to keep his commandments, set themselves apart, be devoted to the Lord, worship him, and love him. The light now has come to us, and it cheers our spirits as the hymn says. Now Simeon rightly tells us to flip the script. The fact is that Jesus is here now, and that means the paradigm has shifted. Now, light, which in Scripture is revelation, understanding, truth. Light is going to be brought to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish peoples of the world. Now, being faithful to God is not a come and see religion. We don't just shut the doors and whoever happens to stumble in are the only people we talk to. No, now, now faithfulness to God is a go and tell religion. The light has come to us. That's what the word gospel means. It's good news. It makes us glad. It cheers our hearts. We rejoice on a Sunday morning. We sing that this has already happened to us. Our waiting is over. Our waiting for a Savior is it's already done. He has come. It's accomplished. We have victory. We, we sing songs like this all the time. I'm fighting a battle you've already won. This is in the past tense. The gospel, when it was first preached, it spread like wildfire. As the truth spreads about Jesus, it sheds light on what those crazy Jews had been doing this whole time. Not only does it bring light to the Gentiles, it brings light to their eyes. It also sheds light on the fact that they were right about this all along. God was really talking to them. It brings glory to, to Israel. That's what Simeon's referring to there. Simeon's response to the fulfillment of this promise was a loud song. We know it had to be loud, because in the first few verses, it seems that somebody, or the next few verses, it seems that somebody overheard it. 
What does God's fulfillment of that promise, the promise to send a Savior, what does that do to you? In other words, how do you respond to the gospel? The whole direction of your life, how is your life responding to the gospel? In the moment of hearing the good news of Jesus, how do you respond to the gospel? What effect does it have on you? News this good does not merely deserve five or six celebration songs one time a week. We just said earlier, let heaven and nature sing. It's right for the rocks to cry out and sing. The entire universe will sing about this forever in the new heaven and new earth, and they will not be exaggerating. Surely, our response of worshipful joy should last longer than the time it takes to leave the parking lot. Does the gospel of Jesus put a song in your heart? In a very real sense, your waiting is over, believer. You may not burst out into spontaneous song like Simeon. Or maybe you will. Does, does this do something to you? The battle is won. The Lord has found you and met you with the light of the gospel. Take that with you everywhere, always. If you aren't walking around on an average day with a metaphorical song in your heart, maybe a literal one too, one gift from God to help change that is the gift of literal songs. Use the songs that we sing here on Sunday to fill your heart and fix your eyes on Jesus. That'll probably mean that you might need to think a bit more while you sing. Try. As you sit there, don't just, don't just lock into that mode where you go on autopilot. Try to remember what scriptures the lyrics of the song are referring to. Close your eyes and imagine let your imagination fixate on a helpful or a biblical image. One simple image that comes to my mind, it happened this morning while we were singing, that often comes to my mind and helps me when I'm singing about the greatness and the power of God is this. I picture, I close my mind, I close my eyes, and I picture the earth spinning out in space. Rising up on the other side of the earth from my vision is Jesus. And he is 10,000 miles tall. And he seems to be getting bigger every second. The whole world fits in the palm of his hand. Now the whole world fits between his fingers. Now the whole world fits between the ridges of his fingerprints. That may seem like a silly exercise to you, maybe. But it, I cannot tell you how much it helps me carry the truth of God's greatness with me throughout the week. I'm in the middle of doing something and it just pops into my head. It pops into my head, and wherever I am, suddenly I'm back here in church. And it's Sunday, and I'm reminded of how good the Lord has been to me. That moment for me is transformed now because of this silly little image. Jesus is bigger than even that. But your imagination is a gift from God as well. You can use that. Use biblical imagery. Paint those pictures in your mind. Get wrapped up in the truth of who Jesus is. I can tell you this. You can try to exaggerate as much as you possibly can. You won't do it justice. He's better than you can imagine. So imagine. Use this to fix your eyes on what you know is true about Jesus. Simeon was essentially doing something like that as he burst out in song. I don't know how long Simeon lived after this account. 
But something tells me that he understood what it meant, certainly after this. He understood what it meant to walk around with a song in his heart because he knew his waiting was over. Simeon also prophesied the effect that Jesus would have on Israel, that not everyone would receive his message. Jesus will reveal the thoughts of many hearts, and we know that happened. They went so far as refusing his message that they crucified him. And Simeon turns to Mary and shares a strange and ominous prophecy with her that a sword would pierce through her very soul. Did Simeon know in that moment that Jesus was going to be crucified on a Roman cross? I don't know, probably not. Did Mary know specifically that Jesus was going to be crucified, that she would have to watch that? Probably not. Not specifically. But the Spirit chose to give them this preview that although Jesus, this Savior King, this Messiah, he comes to bring light and joy, this is amazingly good news, but it will not happen without sorrow. Accomplishing this salvation will be painful. It will be heavy. In the days and weeks after Jesus' death and his resurrection, I'm sure that Mary remembered this moment with Simeon in a different light. One last exhortation from the text. One last verse of the hymn. We'll be done. Our third exhortation is this. Let your worship bless all those who are waiting. Read with me in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer, night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So if you thought uh, that Simeon got a glowing review from Luke, Anna seems to have him beat. (laughs) First of all, it says Anna is a prophetess. That may strike you as a little odd, because I thought we were talking about the silent era here. Um, Where did this this prophetess come from? That word, (coughs) excuse me, that word does not always only mean the one guy with the white beard and the staff who's leading the Jerusalem, leading God's people. That's not the only thing that prophet can mean. There are lots of prophets in Scripture that you probably don't remember. And that's because a prophet is simply someone who's filled with the Spirit and delivering God's message. Sometimes there was people in the office of prophet who were the leader of God's people, but most of them were just people filled with the Spirit who delivered God's message, whether it's a new message or not. There were probably other prophets during those 400 silent years, but none of them had anything new from God. They spoke God's word. They were filled with the Spirit. They prayed fervently. They were prophets. Anna was one of them. She was a prophetess. She fit that description. So you could really copy and paste some of the descriptions there. She was righteous, righteous before God. She was certainly devout. She became a widow when she was very young. Most girls got married in their teenage years in that culture. So in her 20s, most likely, she becomes a widow. But instead of remarrying for whatever reason we're not told, she instead committed herself entirely to the Lord and essentially moved into the temple. She worked there. She served there. She was always there serving God's people and praying and fasting and worshiping. 
verse 38 says, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God. That emphatic time-marking language, at that very hour, that lets us know that this happened at the same time, simultaneous to the thing right before it. And this is not just within the hour, this is simultaneous. She heard Simeon's song and came running. If she lived and worked at the temple, she and Simeon, Simeon being an old, devout man who lived in Jerusalem, they definitely knew each other. She began to give thanks to God and speak of him, that's Jesus, baby Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Luke didn't have to include Anna here. Simeon's story is kind of a a juicier headline. He had a personal promise from God. Come on, that's a cool story. Anna is an old, faithful woman. Why is she here? This is a good question to ask anytime that you stumble across across something that's strange to you in Scripture. Ask the question, what would be missing from Scripture if Luke did not include this? Well, for one, we get another example here where far from denigrating or objectifying women, the Bible, God's word, it honors and values and teaches that the spiritual contributions of women really matter. That's one simple one. But also, Anna shows us even more clearly than Simeon what can happen to someone who positions themselves in God's paths and waits. What often happens is this. You get a front row seat to watch God fulfill his promises. That is a principle that you can take away with you. Put yourself, position yourself in God's paths and you will find yourself witnessing the fulfillment of his promises. That's what we're doing anytime that we sing or pray together. I often use the phrase on a Sunday morning leading you in worship, I use the phrase align our hearts. That's what I'm talking about when we worship in song. That's what I mean. When we sing or pray or listen to biblical teaching or take communion, we position ourselves right in the path where we know God loves to move and we stay there. And as we do that, God is faithful to move and we get to watch him. But only because we were watching. Not every promise is like Simeon's promise. Not every promise is as specific and exciting as Simeon's promise. But here's a promise from God that does not have a flashy fulfillment. I will never leave you or forsake you. It's a promise from God for his people. But when you sing a song about Jesus' love for you, when you hear a brother or sister pray out loud and thank him for his faithfulness, as you hear that, your heart is filled with love and adoration and worship, and you can feel his promise to never leave you or forsake you being fulfilled right there in that moment. He is, for, he is not forsaking you right now. He is with you right now, and you can sense his promise coming true. That's Anna's story. She was right there, and she sensed God's promise coming true. She came running. We would miss that if Luke did not include her. But also, if the story ended with Simeon's ominous chat with Mary, we wouldn't see Anna's beautiful reaction. She immediately goes and tells everyone. Our last verse of the hymn says this, O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid our sad divisions cease. And be thyself our king of peace. 
The Bible uses the word nations and Gentiles interchangeably. Both of those words basically mean everybody else. <laughs> every other nation besides Israel, every other people group. There were so many Jewish laws against intermixing with the other cultures of the world. They were to interact with them but not become like them. The Jewish people occupied with living the way God and their rabbis commanded them. That's what they were occupied with. And they were very accustomed to viewing the outside world beyond their borders as unimportant. But although God had a special plan for Israel, he had a special relationship with Israel, God always had a heart for the nations. Even when God called Abraham and officially founded his covenant with his special chosen people, in that moment, he made a promise one day through Abraham's descendants, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And that promise is fulfilled here in Jesus. And Simeon understood that. He understood that to some degree. He said Jesus would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. But before this news could go out to all the far corners of the earth, it was good and right for it to go to the people who were already waiting and looking for it. And so Anna does the right thing here. She just immediately goes and tells everyone in Jerusalem about what has happened. We are not told of a revival that took place as a result. We don't know how many people that she went and shared this with who scoffed at her message. I'm sure some did. A crazy old lady runs into your house and tells you that the Messiah has come. You're like, all right, there she is again. All right, cool. So I'm sure some scoffed at her. And I'm sure there were some who scoffed on that day, who scoffed again 30 years later when Jesus came to Jerusalem preaching a message of peace and salvation to both the Jews and the Gentiles. The good news of Jesus, it breaks through any and all societal barriers. It crosses the gender divide. Luke chose to tell the story of a prominent woman who shared the good news. The energy here, all the energy of this ending of the passage is aimed outwards. Simeon's worship creates the occasion for Anna's worship, which leads to the occasion for all the faithful people in Jerusalem to worship. So if the exhortation here, like I'm saying, is allow your worship to bless others who are waiting, how do you do that? <laughs> what, what, what is stopping your worship from blessing other people? Well, first of all, you've got to worship. <laughs> It's the same command from the other two points at its core. Yes, sing, certainly, but pour out your whole life as a sacrificial offering of worship to him. Serve him at all times. Keep your lamp burning. You have to have worship for it to be contagious. And the only way for it to be contagious and bless other people is if you're in a community of people to whom you can spread it. If you are the type of person and I love you, this type of person. If you're the type of person who has a hard time opening your mouth to sing in public or to pray in public, please hear this urging from your worship leader. Hearing your worship blesses me. Hearing your prayers blesses me. Your singing blesses me. Watching your life being lived out as an act of worship to the Lord, it blesses me. 
but I only get to have that blessing if I can see it and hear it. Hearing you, open your mouth and share with us what the Lord has been leading you through. It feeds my faith. It does that for your whole church. Even if you're self-conscious, even if you're tempted to compare yourself to others, worship actively with our congregation. Know that your church family is not comparing you to others when they hear you pray or sing or share in gospel community. They're not comparing you to the eloquence of the person sitting next to you. The only thing that's going on in their mind is they're contrasting, not comparing, they're contrasting how cold and unknown you were to them when you kept silent. Contrasting that with how good and encouraging and how much of a blessing it is to hear from you, to see God at work in you. That's all that's going on there. Our waiting should not diminish our worship. It should inflame our worship. We should do that together. We should tell the whole world. We should tell each other. With every day that passes, the Lord's return is one day closer. We should worship together all the more as the day draws near. Let's worship together as we eagerly anticipate what God is going to do. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.